Well, greetings to each one of you. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, welcome to this time in the Word. I invite you to open your Bibles to John, the Gospel of John, in chapter 9. This is a passage of Scripture that I've been anticipating preaching out of. Uh, It's something that... um, I was looking forward to preaching out of John 9. Um, it is, to me, one of the more... Uh, it's just to me, I should say. It's not that I expect it to be to you, but uh, it could be. But it's just its a very meaningful passage of Scripture to me in relation to the sovereignty of God. And uh, I just uh, rejoice in this passage in uh, John 9. And so if you would follow uh, with me as we read here in John chapter 9. I preached out of John 9 uh, at some point here, but when I look back for my my notes, I couldn't find them. So I'm not sure sure what what happened. Maybe I preached without notes. (laughs) I'm not sure, but... Um, I could not find uh, where I had, uh, it was a standalone passage or standalone message. But as we work our way through the gospel according to John, we've come to John chapter 9. So let's begin in verse 1. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore they said to him, How were your eyes opened? He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. And if you would read this to the end of the chapter, you would see the uh, um, rulers and the, and the Pharisees and the scribes and all and the conflict that came out of this, this healing. Interestingly, again, this was a healing on the Sabbath as it was in John chapter 5 where the man by the pool of Bethesda was healed and Christ uh, seems to seems to enjoy to uh to stir the pot and uh he uh he specifically did it here again on the sabbath and so uh but but I want to address this passage of scripture from verses 1 through 12 today and we'll come back at a later date and we we'll consider the rest of the passage but I want to address this passage in five headings and then the first one is the condition of this man. And the, the second, the cause of his condition. And if you're taking notes, the third would be the cure for his condition. And number four, the confusion of the crowd. And then lastly, number five, the confession of this man. Let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you at this time, we 
bow our hearts and our minds and all that we are. We bow it in front of your word. And we pray that you would speak to us and you would instruct us in the way that we should go. And Father, that these truths, these great truths, these profound truths revealed in this passage would, would instruct us and correct us in our doctrine. And that it would uh, have its way in our lives through application. And Lord, we just uh, bless you. We thank you for this time of worship, that you are indeed worthy of our worship. We can come and worship the God of the universe who came and saved us from our sins. And Father, we just bless you and praise you through Christ. Amen. So let's begin here in this first point. I want to just simply point out some things about the condition of this man. Um, the condition of this man as Christ found him. First of all, he was a blind man. This is very straightforward. He was a blind man. Blind, we might say, not by accident, nor by disease, but his condition was congenital, that is, from birth. And he was not only currently blind, but we could consider that this man had never had sight. Just think of this just think with me uh, briefly about what that must have been like. You know, he was Blind currently, but he was historically blind. He was born blind. He never had the opportunity to be gifted with sight. He had always been the way he was currently. Um, He had never related to the world around him through sight. To me, there's so much that we take in through our eyes. There's so much comprehension that comes to us through our sight. Um, But for this man, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to put him in as a secondary citizen because a lot of times the other senses are more keenly honed to perceive what is going on around him. But I would just like to point out a few things that must have been difficult for him. So he had never related to the world by sight. For him, the concept of color, the concept of color was foreign. How would you explain the different hues, the whole palette of color in, a, in the sky? Or the idea of the various colors that are represented in your clothes here today. How would you define color to a blind man who had never had the opportunity to see? Because color, to me, seems like a, entirely a thing of sight. Uh, you can't feel color. You can't hear color. You can't... Um, you know, it is, it is comprehended by sight. And so it was a foreign concept. He sat in darkness. Think about shape. Shape was only what he could comprehend by feeling. You know, if, if something were outside of his reach, it would be very difficult for him to comprehend what it was like. This was a blind man who could only comprehend shape, I believe, by laying his hands on it. Think about size and scale. It was difficult, I'm sure. The scope of something, how vast is. The, how vast is, for instance, the mountains the the mountain range or the the big sky country we might say he he could not comprehend 
I wonder sometimes how an imagination of a blind man works. What would his imagination be like? His condition was narrow and confined to his other senses, his hearing, his feeling, his taste. How old do you think he was? We don't know, but we, knew, we do know that this man was of age. And very likely he was already out of his parents' house. It's, it's not, we're not sure, but his parents had to be called, come and, and identify this man. So he was, I used to think he was 40 years old, but I, I'm not sure where I got that. But he was of age. He may have been 20. He may have been 25, 30. His only recourse here, as we think about a blind man, his only recourse was to beg. This man's condition was such that he subsisted on the benevolence of others. He had no recourse except to sit by the wayside and hold out his hand and wait for the clink of the, of the coins as they dropped in. His blindness, his condition had impoverished him. It had impoverished him. He sat, we could say, by the wayside and begged. You think about his age, the passing of time, and the fact that he had sat there for many years. Possibly, possibly ten years. Think of him being born and his being in his mother's arms and he was growing and he was he was able to as he was little, it didn't impact his life so much. But as he grew up and lived his life and became older and the passing of time, I believe, would have taken away his hope of change. And then another thing I think that is of a different thing entirely here as to condition of this man is revealed by the question of the disciples. Can you imagine if, the, if this question had any, has any indication and his disciples ask him saying, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So if there's any indication as to the culture, then we would, we would recognize here, I believe, that, that his being born blind was considered something that was his own fault. Something that was brought on by him, by his, some, some action of his own. Was he, who sinned? It's just the, the assumption immediately that the disciples had was that someone sinned. And so, this blind man was probably disdained as some great sinner who got what he deserved. A sentence of blindness for some crime, for the crime of some great sin. We, we see that this man was in a difficult place. Let me ask, let me just point out what a picture of unregenerate man. What a picture. Where he was not functioning on every dimension. He didn't have the full comprehension of one who is born again. Where the world opens up into a new dimension. And our spirits are made alive. And we can see in color. And we can rejoice in color. We can comprehend the scope and the scale of great things. Now, what a picture of unregenerate man, blind from his birth. Truly a congenital disease. From birth, always this way. What a picture of unregenerate man. This is the condition that Christ found him in. He found him in this condition. Number two. Let's consider the cause of his condition. Now this man had a physical ailment that was 
That is primarily what we see here. We can, we can spiritualize this if we want, but let's not go so far that we miss out just a simple illustration that this passage is. The cause of his condition, as we consider this man's reality, we now come to the why that it was so. Why was this man so? This is, this is a, a question that came from the disciples in themselves. And while the disciples seem to have been out in left field with their assumption, I am still glad that they asked a question because of the profoundness of his answer. I'm glad they asked the question. For the answer from Christ, I believe, is as profound as you'll find anywhere. This great truth here of why that this man was as he was. What was the cause of this? Well, Jesus assures us that it was not sin. You know, the, man, the man's own or his parents. It was not that that was the cause of it. How, you know, think about it here. How could it have been the blind man's fault? How could he have, how could he have behaved in some way that he would have been born blind? You know, I, I find it a little, you know, a little mysterious there. How could it be his fault? He was born that way. Did they believe in some, you know, did they believe in some sort of reincarnation or karma or something? Or maybe some pre-existence of the soul that, that now had to pay for some crime in the past? I mean, what's the logic here? Well, I, I think the Lord only knows. You know, what they were thinking and, and how, how that could have made sense to them. No, the cause of this man's condition was nothing as small and insignificant as the man himself or his parents. No, it was not that small. The reason for his condition comes straight from his Creator. He was born blind that the works of God might be shown off in him. Now, that's, that's pretty amazing. That is, that is wow. That God would take this man and allow him to be in this sort of condition for the glory that Christ received when he healed him and that God received from him. And, but let's remember, it wasn't just a little five-minute increment of glory that Christ received. Because remember, we are still learning from this. We are still experiencing the wonder of Almighty God and His right and His dominion and His rule in the affairs of men today, 2,000 years after this happening. And it is still correcting the pride of man. Here is a stumbling block for the pride and the self-importance of man that we think we are of such a, a, an important figure that we can say that our Creator should not have allowed us to be made with defective eyesight or whatever it is that we are experiencing. You see, here's the answer for that great question that thinking man has always asked. Why am I here? It's right here in John 9. Why am I here? What purpose is served by my living and dying? We, we go through all these things that we do through life, working, educating ourselves, working, bringing in income so that we can buy land and houses and trucks and cars, so that we can do more work, so that we can... And then we, in the process of doing all these things, we age and while we are aging, then we, just, we, 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 we become less and less able to work. And then we ultimately get old and we die and we leave it to somebody else. What is, the, what is the use of all that? I think it's right to ask this question. Why would we do that? Why... Am I here? Well, this passage is telling us that the, the why that you're here is not about you. 
you see. It's not about you. What purpose is served by my living and dying? You see, the uniqueness of this man's condition highlights the sovereignty of God. Now, we recognize that this man had a very unique condition. But it doesn't bring out a unique truth to him. We must understand that the sovereignty of God was not unique to this man. This was a man that is used to make a point. And because he was a man, then we say he's one of us. He is one of us. This man is one of us, and it shows us that we are all subject to God's sovereign rule. And that this man's condition is all that is unique. The man's condition is unique, but the sovereignty of God in allowing it to be so and making it to be so is not unique. Not unique at all. The cause of, this con- of his condition, and remember, we have his condition, a very sad state of affairs, we would say. But who are we to say that? You see? How can we say that? We're not God. How can we stand in judgment over God who allowed this to be so? You see. But we tend to do that. We tend to say, oh, well, you know, we have to defend God for doing this to this man. Well, who are we to stand or sit in judgment of Almighty God for allowing such a thing? No, we just simply bow our hearts and our minds and our will to the fact that God has this sovereign right and that we will not sit in judgment over Almighty God. The cause of His condition in this case is God's purpose. We see it again in John 11 and verse 4. Now you remember this case of the death of Lazarus. Actually, this was before he was dead. He was sick. And when Jesus heard that in verse 4 of John 11, he said, this sickness is not unto death. Well, he did die, but it was not the end of that whole thing. He came back to life. But for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Just a a very interesting thing to consider. That God allowed, even even caused the sickness of Lazarus to glorify His Son. Now, why do we glory in this passage as children of God? Why do we glory in that? I think we rejoice in this because all the opposition that you and I face in in our Walk on this earth as children of God. We simply rejoice that God is in control. We rejoice that God is in charge, you see. What a glorious, glorious thing. See, we have such a low view of the glory of God that we indict Him for using human suffering to glorify His goodness and greatness. You see, we, we have this low view that says, well, God, it's not fair. It's not fair for you to use human suffering to glorify yourself. But see, we have such a misunderstanding of His glory. You know, as if we were God and had some say as to what our circumstances should be. John 9 has humbled me so many times. You see that God would have the right, the rule, 
to bring things into my life, to let me even be born in such a way that he could glorify himself. Now, I do believe that there are circumstances and conditions and consequences that are because of sin. I mean, we, we see passages like uh, 1 Corinthians 11, I think in verse 30, where he says there are some weak and sickly among you because you're not properly judging the Lord's body. You have passages like John, I mean, like James, I think, 5, where it speaks about if someone is sick, let the elders come and lay their hands on him and pray for him. And if he has sinned, his sins will be forgiven him. Uh, you have passages that indicate that sin can be the reason someone is sick. But it is not inherently so. It is not necessarily so. But that we live in a fallen world that God is using the suffering of humanity. In some cases, as we see here in John 9, for His own purpose and glory. And even the consequences that, that God has, he, even if our sickness is from our sin. That is still a rule that is set up by Almighty God that says, I will not be mocked. What a man sows, that will he also reap. And God has still placed that in. It is still a mark of the sovereignty of God even there. That when man sins, God says, this, this, and this will happen. And I will not be mocked, he says. This is a rule that I have put in place. But John 9 is not about that. John 9 is about a man born blind, not because he had sinned, not because he was dropped when he was born or she fell when she was pregnant with him and somehow, no, none of that. It was because God wanted this man to grow up, sit by the wayside and beg so that when Jesus Christ came by, that God would be glorified in His healing. Well, what if sometimes our healing is in a future date? You see, the man had no time frame here that he could control. Christ came by when it was time for him to come by because he is sovereign he is sovereign see this account is so stark and so sharply defined because there's no human cause behind it that's why it stands out so vibrantly for us there's no human cause for it So this is a very similar thing as we read about in Job 1. I just want to flip back to Job briefly. If you would flip back to Job 1. In verse 1, I think you're all familiar with this passage. But if you're not recently been here, I want to point out where it says in God's word, there was a man in the land of Uz who's us whose name was Job. And that name was that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. Blameless and upright. What a beautiful picture of a godly man. And he speaks about some of what what he speaks about his uprightness and his blamelessness is found in verse where Job would intercede for his sons, say maybe they have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. And then in verse 6, Job 1, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, 
From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Have that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. I think what he is saying here, what God is saying here to his adversary, he says, Have you noticed Job? Have you considered Job? And you know, it's, we know that he, that he did. Because he says, You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. You know, the, the devil knew that. He understood that Job was a blessed man, that, his, that he was a rich man, and that he was prospering. He had noticed Job. He said, you know, you've put a hedge around him, but I can't get to him. Let me point out something that's very similar to the John 9 passage. And that is that God did not consult with Job before he turned the devil loose on him. He did not ask for Job's permission. Job was subjected to the suffering that he experienced because God was glorying over these enemy. God was glorified through the life of Job. And he, God exalted over his enemy, over Satan, his adversary, because of Job. And Job didn't have any recourse but to suffer patiently. And he humbled himself. And we know the story of Job. What, a, what an amazing Amazing truth that God has the right to do that. This is the profound truth of John 9 here, that God has the right to bring these things into our lives without consulting us at all. In 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 9, in that passage where Paul and speaks of him and Apollos and their role in working. He says in John in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 9, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. Let each one take heed how he builds on it. We are God's field, and how He chooses to plow His field is His prerogative. It is His prerogative. And, and, and how He chooses to build His building is by His own master plan. Now, I think, I th- and we'll, we'll get to this, but I think it's, it's important that we don't, that we don't, uh, we don't construct, we don't take the sovereignty of God and, the, and the, the, the absolute authority of God and take and separate it from His wonderfully good character. We should, we should never divorce that. And even in the John 9 passage, we see it profoundly to be true. That His sovereignty and His grace and His, His mercy are one. They're found in one person, in, the, in God Himself. And that if we take the sovereignty of, of God as to be something that denies His goodness, then we have a misunderstanding of the character of God. But God's glory is so great that it is right and just for man to suffer to reveal it. And, it is, and if it is so great, if God's glory is so great then, the most meaningful use of your life, of my life, is to have the works of God revealed in it. That is the whole reason for our existence, people. That the works of God might be revealed in our lives. Let's go to the number three, the cure for his condition. As we consider this man's healing, let's look at the setting again. Consider with me. 
this setting. In verse 1 it begins, Now as Jesus passed by. Well, passed by from what? We'll go back to John 8 in verse 59. The one just before this verse. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Now, as Jesus passed by, you see the setting? Jesus basically was escaping from the angry Jewish mob when he encountered the beggar. That's the setting. He was escaping out of the temple and they, had, they were chasing Him with rocks. Christ was here on a mission of mercy and grace and He was being chased with rocks. And then notice verse 1 again. As He passed by, He saw a man. That's what it says. He saw a man Born blind. He didn't see a beggar, did he? No, that doesn't come out until about verse 6, verse 7 or 8. Is not this he who sat and begged? He saw a man who was blind from birth. He saw a man, not a beggar. Consider again the disciples' reaction. His interest provoked. What makes him so? Rabbi, what's his problem? What caused this? You see, they seen someone different from themselves and assumed he got himself in a mess. That's how we look at the guy standing on the end of the, of the, uh, of the interstate ramp. That on-ramp where they stand at the light, we come up to him, we say, why don't you get a job? You must have had some, you know, pretty bad situations for you to be in this, this condition. Well, let me ask you, as one commentary pointed out, you know, what good did it, would come from this, the disciples' question? Who sinned, this man or his parents? What good would come from that? What good does it for us to know what, what sin he had done or not? We just recognize that he's different from us, so he must have sinned some gigantic sin. But that, you see what that makes you and what it makes me? It makes us, you know, well, we didn't do that. That's why we're not there. It appears as if they had already passed judgment on this man. But Christ, this cure for this condition, Christ seen a suffering member of humanity. And you know what he said? He said, I must get to work. That's what he said. Notice what he says. But that the works of God should be revealed in him, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. You know, who of us and I think maybe we should be more motivated to work when we see a man like this. who A beggar. An impoverished person. Christ said, I must work. I must get to work with this man. The compassion of Christ was the, was the cure for this man's congenital disease. His congenital condition. The compassion of Christ. So you see the works of God in verse 3 were the same as His work in verse 4. You know, isn't it wonderful that, that Christ it, it says in Him, but that the works of God should be revealed in Him. Then He says, I must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Jesus says very simply, this is what I am here for. This is why I was sent. This is why my Father sent me. This is the work He gave me to do. I must get it done while it is day. While I have opportunity. The night of my death and departure is coming. 
He says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And my title this morning would be simply, Jesus gives light to blind eyes. Jesus gives light to blind eyes. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of it. In John 1.14, and we know this very well, but he says there, John in the prologue here of this gospel, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Indeed, we behold the glory of Christ in this account. The glory of Jesus Christ is revealed here in this passage. How that He's seen this blind man, this beggar, in such a condition as He was unable to help Himself. And He said, I must work the works of Him who sent Me. Instead of indicting the Creator for making this man with defective eyes, we see that God used them, used him as an object lesson for us. That we might learn and comprehend that we are all, in John 9, all of us are here in John 9. That the sending of Christ, the work of Christ, the mission of Christ was to show us the glory of God in His great goodness to suffering humanity. Indeed, the people who sat in great darkness have seen a greater light. Christ here was ministering to this man. He was doing what He came for. And this is the cure, to bring this cure to this man. To show this man the goodness of God. And by extension, us. Showing us the goodness of God. That the works of God might be revealed in Him. This is a beautiful picture here of the goodness of God and the sovereignty of God in the same passage. That the very Savior... The very one who had deemed it right to make this man with defective eyes would then come in to this world and deliver him from his blindness to make a point to the rest of us down through history that while I am sovereign, I am sovereignly good. I am a good God to you. And I have your ultimate Blessing and benefit in mind. In verse 6, let's read verse 6. After he had said these things, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. You know, I had to think of In verse 6, we see a picture of the Incarnation. The joining together of that which is from heaven with that which is from the earth. The joining together of that. And it is for our healing. You know, that which is divine, joined with our humanity to affect our sight, to affect our cure. Christ did not restore this man's vision. He created eyes that saw for the first time. This man had never seen. So there was no restoration there. No, he created his eyes again. You know, think about it. Truly he used his breath joined with an earthen form the first time. He used his breath when he created Adam. And he blew into his nostrils and he became a living soul. Well, this time, he used his spit and joined it with an earthen, with with the dust of the earth and anointed the eyes of this man. 
And it was for his healing. You know, we don't know why Christ did it like this. Why did he spit in the ground, on the ground, form a paste, and anoint the eyes? But it was a very intimate thing for him to do. It was a very, he, he touched this man. As, as Brother Enos pointed out this morning, the touching of an unclean person had the result of making one unclean. But here, Christ intimately prepared this clay. He could have spoken his eyesight into, his, into existence, but he prepared the clay, applied the anointment, and gave him a command. Go and wash. Truly, that's still the way we're healed today. He prepared the solution for our salvation. It's applied through the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's always joined with the command to, do, to follow me. To come, follow me. Go and wash. And the last sentence of verse 7 is beautiful, isn't it? So he went and washed and came seen. It's a beautiful picture. Then, then the num- number four is the crowd's confusion. As we move through this passage, the crowd's confusion. And this, this the, you know, the effect of Christ's work here is highlighted. The crowd was astounded. What he changed was wrought in this man. You know, he, he was, his identity was in question. Is it really the same man? You know, he, his, his, uh, he had a whole new level of comprehension. Think about it. He was functioning in a new dimension, as we talked about earlier. His condition had radically changed. He, his occupation changed. And his neighbors were confused. Some said, yes, it's him. Others said, no, it just looks like him. Truly, Think of John 3 where it says the Spirit blows where it will. You know the sound thereof, but you don't know from whence it comes and where it goes. So is every man that is born of the Spirit. And truly, this crowd, his neighbors, it says, therefore his neighbors and those who previously had seen him. Is this not one who used to sit here and beg? They were confused and they were perplexed about the level of change that Christ had wrought in this man. And then lastly, I want to come to the last point. That is his confession. His confession. What a wonderful thing. He just simply laid it all aside and answered all their questions says, I'm he. Yeah, I'm the one. I was that, and now I'm this. You know me as that, now know me as this. I was here, now I'm here, you see. He just simply confessed, I am the one. This was me. This, this was who I was. Well, they, they said, what happened? You know, how were your eyes opened? And then this beautiful, the next couple words, he answered and said, a man called Jesus, you see. Isn't that a beautiful picture? A beautiful picture. He had never seen this man. He had never known him. He said, a man called Jesus. You know, that's what happened to me. I encountered this man called Jesus and he had compassion on me. He made a clay and he he anointed my eyes and he told me what to do and I did what he told me and I can see. Notice what he says, I receive sight. That's still the picture today, isn't it? When somebody testifies, they confess that I was this, now I'm that. 
I met a man named Jesus and he anointed my, my eyes and, and now I can see. That is so true about us. So true. You see the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God right here. May we always keep those two together. Well, in closing, in 1 Peter 5 and verse 6, it simply says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. That's not always easy. To have God doing things in our lives that are painful. We all know, we have all had incidences and circumstances in our lives that were out of our control. And sometimes it's really hard to accept. What God has allowed to come into our lives. But Peter says, just humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. You have no right to tell God what your circumstances should be. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. And we know, we know that He will in due time. And notice again, this exaltation, the mighty hand of God and the exaltation that He is able to do in due time is married right again with His goodness. The sovereignty and goodness is right here. 1 Peter 6 and 7. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. Casting all your care upon Him. Why should we cast our care on Him? Because He cares for you. And who would you rather have caring for you but a sovereign, mighty God who cares for you? You see. Well, I want to close with these two verses in the back of First Peter. Verse 10 and 11. But may the God of all grace, who called us to His eternal glory, by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen.